And we heard last week that this is some of what was happening for the people of God who were living in the land of Judah during the days of Zechariah the prophet. Um, They were such a tiny fragment, just a remnant really, of the great nation that had existed in the past during the glory days of Kings David and Solomon. Um, Set free by the Persians after 50 years of captivity in Babylon, these are all that have so far returned to the land. And the prophets of the past had led them to think that this might be the dawn of a new golden age for the people of God, at least as, if not more, glorious than the days of David and Solomon. But 20 years into that return from exile, and and hardly anything has turned out the way that they were expecting. Uh, Nearly all of those promises of God seem to have almost just evaporated into thin air. But you see, as far as God was concerned, there was still a fundamental problem. Because, yes, his people had returned geographically to the land. But they hadn't yet returned spiritually back to God in their hearts. They'd lost their zeal for being God's people and for aligning their lives with the kingdom work that God was doing and had promised. And so the wonderful call and promise of God that we heard last week in chapter 1, verse 3, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will, declare, I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And this morning we're going to see just how far God will go with this wonderful promise to return to his people, both what it will mean for them, but also what it will mean for all the nations of the world. Just very quickly to kind of get our bearings, because aware that this is not the most familiar book for many of us, a simple way to think about the book of Zechariah is really to split it in two. Um, In the first half, chapters 1 to 6, there are eight visions. In the second half, chapter 7 to 14, there are two oracles, two speeches by God. Uh, Each half of the book has a little introduction. Chapters 1, 1 to 6 for the first half, chapters 7 to 8 for the second half. Now this morning we're going to dig into the eight visions. We're going to start digging into those eight visions. And there's a pattern that is established for us by the very first vision. Uh, In verse 8, Zechariah has a vision during the night. Just by seeing it alone, he doesn't really understand what it all means. But there's an angel there. And so Zechariah asks him, what does all this mean? And then the angel explains it for him. And this pattern of a vision followed by an explanatory conversation with the angel, I asked, he answered, that's repeated in visions two and three. You can see that up on the screen. Um, The the same pattern is repeated again in visions six to eight. So there's a vision that Zechariah has and then that explanatory conversation. I asked, he answered. He asked, I answered. And that's how that goes. Um, Visions four and five are the only two that really depart from this pattern. They they work a little bit differently. But what that means is we're kind of left with this pattern of three visions, two visions, and three visions. And we're going to see over the next few weeks that the ideas do develop across the visions in that structure. And so today we're looking at the first three visions. Um, We're told in verse 7 that it's now the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius. That puts us about three months on from chapter 1, verse 1, where we were last week. And here's what happened, uh, verse 8. And but can I just say, by the way, it was so encouraging as the Bible was being read for us by Amanda. I just looked around and saw so many people with a phone out or a Bible out. If you've kind of let go of your pattern of bringing a Bible to church or having it open in front of you, 
do pick that pattern up again. I want you to trust me, but I don't want you to trust me that much. I want you to test me and, and weigh what I say and have, have the only rule that really matters open in front of you. So chapter 1, verse 8, this is what happened in the first vision. During the night, I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine, but behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my lord? And the angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go through the earth. Uh, it's a little bit tempting perhaps to try and uh, dig into this vision and find the meaning behind each of the little details in what Zechariah sees. Uh, you know, what's the significance of the myrtle trees? Why are they in a ravine? What about the colour of the horses? Is that important? But remember that even Zechariah himself um, just by seeing the vision, he doesn't understand what it all means. He has to ask the angel about it. And so we're going to keep our focus on what the angel does explain and not speculate on the things that the angel doesn't explain. That's going to be our procedure. And what we need to know here is that the horses work, and it's likely that there's many horses, not just um, kind of four of them, one at the back and three, sorry, one at the front and three at the back. It's probably one at the front and three groups of horses, three teams of horses at the back in each of the colours. But their job is global surveillance. Uh, the image would probably have been pretty familiar to Zechariah and his hearers. Um, the historians tell us that Persian kings regularly sent out riders on horseback to patrol, uh, patrol the empire. Um, it's a really vivid reminder to everyone of who was in charge, but also a way for them to keep tabs on what was going on in the empire. Uh, if you're into Lord of the Rings, someone recently likened them to Sauron's ring rats. But these horses, they belong to the Lord. What a vivid reminder that would have been to Zechariah that God's sovereign power is total and complete. I mean, yes, the Persian Empire at this point in human history may well have been the biggest thing that anyone had ever seen before, but God's kingdom is bigger. I mean, the whole earth belongs to him. He sends his riders out everywhere. There is nowhere where their feet won't tread. Friends, we must remember this when we ourselves go through times in life and it feels like perhaps our way has become hidden from God. And we all go through times like that, don't we? Or when perhaps it seems like God hasn't noticed the struggles that we're going through. That maybe he's preoccupied with other more important things. His attention is elsewhere. I mean, surely the people of Judah must have had such thoughts as they kind of scratched out their living in the shadows of Persia. But Zechariah's first vision tells us a different story. Their way was not hidden from God. And nor was the state of the world at large because he has his riders going out everywhere. And, and verse 11, we, we hear their report. We have gone throughout the earth and we found the whole world at rest and in peace. And I mean, surely at first that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? The world at rest and in peace. Who wouldn't want that? But in this case, that's not the, the right kind of conclusion because there's no sooner are the words of the report given than the angel of the Lord kind of cries out to God on behalf of God's people to let us know really that a world that is at rest and in peace is not a good thing. It's a topsy-turvy thing. 
It's an upside-down thing. It's an inside-out thing. Because how can the world be at rest and in peace when the, the people of God, the precious, beloved, chosen people of God, are still languishing? You see verse 12? Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty. And remember from last week, that powerful name for God that is used frequently through this book. Lord Almighty, Yahweh of mighty angelic armies. Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which, with which you've been angry these 70 years? And so the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Uh, here, I think, is where we start to find all the bits of the historical puzzle kind of locking into place for us. Because uh, you see that rise of Babylon almost 100 years earlier, the, the demise of God's people being carried off into exile. These were not just the random events in the ordinary flow of history. These were the very expression of God's universal sovereignty over the whole earth. Because when God was angry with his people because of their sin and when they refused to pay attention to his call to repent... And even mighty Babylon, that was really just the tool that God raised up and then wielded against his people in his righteous judgment. But see, that time of judgment's now finished. Those 70 years of withholding mercy, they're now done and dusted. Now is the time for kind and comforting words from God. Words of jealous love for the apple of his eye. It's like a husband has a rightly jealous love for his wife or a parent has a rightly jealous love for their child. That's how God now speaks to his people. Of course, the opposite of all that is now true for the nations because verse 16, they went too far with their punishment of God's people and now in their arrogance, they imagine themselves to have been the makers of their own destiny and the reason for their own greatness. They feel so secure, verse 15. They've become smug before God. They've become arrogant before God. They have dismissed even the very thought that the God of Judah might have anything to do with them. They don't realise that he is the one to whom they are answerable. So they're living large, at rest and in peace, while the land of Judah, and most especially Jerusalem, it just continues to look every day like a building site. Verse 16 tells us what God will do. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. And in verse 17, my towns will again overflow with prosperity my people are going to be rich. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. And so we've got these two themes that really are unlocked for us by these first two visions. 
without doubt, God will certainly return to his people and he will certainly accomplish his purposes and establish his kingdom and Jerusalem will be rebuilt and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for his people, that means comfort and kindness. It means the boundless limits of God's mercy and grace. It means a rebuilt Jerusalem, prosperity and peace. But for the nations who have stood against God's people, the return of God to establish his kingdom, well, that will spell utter disaster. And that's really what we see in the second vision, isn't it? At verse 18, uh, this is what happened. I looked up and there before me there were four horns. And I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. When you hear about horns here, don't think musical instruments, think animals. Um, Because horns are what animals use to attack their prey, aren't they? Horns are what animals use to stab and slash and tear flesh. And this is what the nations like Assyria and Babylon and even some of the smaller neighbour nations like Edom, this is what the nations have done to God's people when they carried them off into exile and scattered them from the land. And so the horns are nations, they're kingdoms that are hostile to God and hostile to God's people. But against all this, then verse 20, the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I asked, what are these coming to do? And he answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head, but the craftsmen have come to terrify them. And throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. That is a bizarre contrast, isn't it? On one hand, the destructive horns of strong, powerful animals. On the other, the fine, delicate work of master craftsmen, kind of embroiderers, jewellers, people that have been involved in the past in the construction of the tabernacle back in the days of Moses or of the temple in the days of Solomon. You pit those two groups against each other in the arena to fight, there would only be one outcome, wouldn't it? One group seems so strong, the other so weak. Surely the horns would win. But not according to Zechariah's vision. And how utterly consistent to the God who is revealed through Scripture that he should use the weak to shame the strong. And that he should use the foolish to shame the wise. And that he should use the things that are not, the lowly things of the world, the despised things, to shame the things that are something. And how fitting that when the Son of God eventually came to Jerusalem, as a craftsman, no less, the son of a carpenter, It would not be by might nor by power, but by a shameful death on a despised Roman cross that the great power of Satan would be overturned and the gates of heaven would be flung open wide to everyone who trusts in him. Now, of course, we too continue to live in a time and place when the nations of the world appear very powerful and strong. Uh, seemingly able to carry on without consequence for their almost complete disregard for God or his son or his kingdom 
for his people. They can seem so secure and perhaps they even feel it about themselves. And maybe for you that takes the form of a particular culture that has developed in your workplace or among your wider family network or in the school community that you and your family are a part of or in a little neighbourhood. A culture that despises God, dismisses his son and derides his people. And they can seem so secure and perhaps they even feel it about themselves. And yet for God's suffering people, when they are brought to the point of wanting to cry out to God, how long will this go on? How long until you come and fulfill your purposes? Zechariah's vision assures us of this thing and it gives us reason to continue trusting in Christ. The horns of the nations are no match for the craftsmen of God. And so finally we come to the third vision at the start of chapter 2. Another time Zechariah looked up and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand and I asked, where are you going? He answered, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Um, Back at the end of vision one, God had promised that a measuring line would be stretched out over Jerusalem and the young man in this vision seems to have taken those words to heart but in verses three and four we find out actually there won't be any place for a measuring line at all Um, first because this city won't actually have any walls at least not any made by man and second because it will be so very large it will be filled with just a great number a great multitude of people and animals Uh, Maybe that sounds like a dangerous combination. You've got a large population in a city with no walls. Um, But if the people of the old Jerusalem were carried off into exile, even though that city had walls, how will this group be safe in this city? But no, in Jerusalem 2.0, God himself will be its protection. God himself will be the wall of fire around its edge and its glory from within. And so in the riches of God's mercy, the multitudinous inhabitants of this city will enjoy these two great blessings, safety from their enemies and God's own living presence among them in their very midst, him as their God, they as his people, the sheep of his pasture. What more than these things ultimately could we ever need or want? As you zoom forward from Zechariah, you come to the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament and It picks up on on some of the different themes that we've seen in these first three visions. Uh, In Revelation 6, for example, there's a a scene where there's a number of scrolls that are unsealed, uh, kind of to reveal the plans and purposes of God. And at one point we read these words. Uh, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord? holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. It's that same cry for justice that we heard from Zechariah 1, isn't it? 
how long, sovereign Lord? How long until you come and put things right? How long will the world be at rest and in peace and dismissing you with seemingly no consequence before you act? How long till you come and judge the nations? How long, Lord? And just like in Zechariah, the answer is given as God measures things, a little while longer. Now the book of Revelation goes on, by the end of chapter 20, the Lamb of God has come and his judgment on the nations has fallen. And then chapter 21 that Amanda read for us before, we get a picture of what will be established for the rich blessing and enjoyment of God's people who have trusted in Jesus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look at this. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And he will be their God. They will be his people. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. It's a revelation of what is certainly to come. The future that God has prepared and is working to. And since it is certain that this is what God will do, since it is certain that this is the outcome God is fully committed to bringing about, it's no wonder that back in Zechariah 2 it just makes perfect sense that we hear God's call to align our lives completely with the future that God has made known. Firmly to take our place among the people that God is saving to participate with perseverance and joy in the kingdom that God is building. And so Zechariah chapter 2 verse 6, Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. Verse 7, Come, Zion, escape you who live in daughter Babylon. This is where the action's going to be. Get out of there. Verse 10, shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Friends, you might have been a member of NCA Church for years. You might have only just started with us recently. Honestly, you might know that you're still just trying to understand what the whole Christian faith is all about. But wherever we are at as we hear the word of God together this morning, the message of Zechariah is that God will certainly achieve his purposes. He will certainly come and establish his kingdom. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The only wise response is to align our lives with what he is doing to keep returning to him. After all, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Amen.